0: And it just hit me that this man, who was far removed from much of the center of evangelicalism, had a small little place, seemingly insignificant, impacted Christian people and Christian leaders all around the world in this small little place.
1: Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Strock, and today we're going to be discussing Francis Schaeffer, the legacy of his life and thought. Earlier this month, we discussed Schaeffer's book, A Christian Manifesto. Written in 1981 and republished the following year, A Christian Manifesto outlined a basic public theology. This month, our website is exploring the chapters of that book, and considering how and where and why Schaeffer's work still speaks today. In our last interview, Steve Wellam and I discussed Schaefer's A Christian Manifesto with Brad Green. Today, we'll be looking more personally at the man himself. For starters, it might help to give a biographical sketch. Francis Schaefer was born in 1912 and lived until 1984. He came to faith at the age of 18. After reading the entire Bible, he came to a faith at an evangelistic revival. Soon after his conversion, he went to Hampton-Sydney College in Virginia. Later, he attended Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and then graduated from Faith Seminary, another Presbyterian school. In 1935, he married Edith, the daughter of missionaries. Without her labors of hospitality at their home, it's largely possible we would not know Francis Schaeffer as we know him today. As Oz Guinness has said, in many ways, Edith was the secret to Labrie. Still, Labrie was still years away when the Schaeffers wed in 1935. First, Schaeffer became a pastor in western Pennsylvania and then St. Louis. During that time, he engaged in many of the fundamentalist and liberal battles for the Bible in America. But in 1947, he moved to Europe where he became a missionary and an evangelist, finally settling in Switzerland at a place called the Shelter, or more famously, Labrie. Today, Schaeffer is remembered as an evangelist to the radicals of the 1960s. His documentary, How Shall We Then Live?, chronicled the flow of Western thought from Rome to the nihilism of his day. And after the Supreme Court legalized the murder of infants in Roe v. Wade, he was one of the first defenders of life. Indeed, the pro-life movement and the abolition movement owe much to Schaeffer's work today. And his 23 books, most of which Crossway still publishes, Saints will find a series of arguments that engage the culture with grace and true truth. Still, the feature that is most remarkable about this man, at least remarkable to me, is the way he spurred on a generation of theological educators, apologists, and evangelists. Many who spent time with him and many who read his works were spurred on towards theological education and full-time ministry, including my good friend Stephen Wellham. In fact, it's Steve's article that we will be discussing today, as Trent Hunter and I discuss with Steve the life and thought of Francis Schaeffer. For those who are new to our podcast, Trent Hunter is the pastor for preaching and teaching at Heritage Bible Church in Greer, South Carolina, and Steve Wellam is professor of theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Together, they have written Christ from beginning to end, how the full story of Scripture reveals the full glory of Christ, and today, we're going to be talking about the legacy of Francis Schaeffer. So, brothers, welcome to Christ Overall. Glad to be here. Thanks, Dave. Good to have you guys. Well, before getting into Steve's piece and learning how Francis Schaeffer impacted Steve's life and ministry, Trent, I want to begin with a question for you. Why should a pastor who is busy dealing with the problems of 2022
2: give attention to Francis Schaeffer who died in 1984? Why does Schaeffer matter today? It's good you mentioned the date of his death there. So pastors, we often are reading new books by authors who are engaging things today. That's good. And we all like to talk about reading old dead guys who, pastors and theologians who died a long time ago, who we can enter their world and their challenges and see our own from, a, from the v- different vantage point. And uh, so that's always helpful. But Francis Schaefer is good for us in a couple of reasons. I introduced him to our church in a blog post in 21 and had a header in there called Meet Francis Schaefer, a Recently Dead Pastor. So he's old enough to have stood the test of time. Time is a wonderful sorting mechanism, and he stood the test of time because time has shown that he understood his times correctly. And so we've got lots of voices around us today. A lot of them are helpful, some less helpful, but here is somebody whose voice is tested. But secondly, Francis Schaeffer is unique and that he's a recently enough dead guy to speak more directly into our own times. Even reading the Christian Manifesto a bit More recently, it is as though he understood our moment better than I do, and it's actually true that he does and did. But a third reason, though, so not only is he's a past theologian, but he's recently enough that he can speak to our moment in a direct fashion. He wasn't just getting the scriptures and the times right, but he was an example of what to do and how to live in light of that knowledge. He was an academic dealing with big ideas at a high level, but also an evangelist bringing them quite literally home to everyday people. So those are some thoughts. There are others on why Francis Schaeffer would be helpful to a Christian minister today.
1: Yeah, that's helpful, brother. That's a good way to introduce, as we talked with Brad Green about the Christian Manifesto, we want to get to know a little bit more about Francis Schaeffer, the man, his thought, his life, his ministry. And Steve has served us well by writing an introduction to some of those things. And Steve, you begin in that piece by just talking about his own impact on your life in high school. Tell us a little bit more about that and how you came across Francis Schaeffer and how he really formed some beginning ways of thinking about
0: life and ministry and theology and all the rest. Yeah, I love to do so. I was raised in a very strong Christian home and had a pastor that faithfully taught God's Word, but I didn't become a Christian until 16. And one of the early struggles that I had in trying to Communicate with my non Christian friends. I grew up in Canada. It was already a very, very secular country. And uh, trying to say to them, look, you need to know Jesus and you need to know the truth of the gospel. And they would say, well, why do you believe that? And you only believe that because you were raised in a Christian background and family and so on. And so I then turned to some people to help me think through what Christianity is, how to defend it, how to do evangelism properly. And That's where I was fortunate to have an older brother and my mother actually had read a lot of Francis Schaeffer and both of them said, read Francis Schaeffer to help think of these areas and to help understand your time and to be able to communicate effectively to the people that you're rubbing shoulders with in high school. And that's where I came across his first book, Escape from Reason. And it was so helpful in thinking about the broader sense of it wasn't just A narrow kind of gospel. It was truth, and the truth affected all of reality, and Christ was Lord of all of reality, and it helped me understand something of my own day. And then from there, it just went to all of his works. And as I went to seminary later on, a number of years later, getting a hold of his tape catalog that was given to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and cutting grass and doing work and trying to maybe do some exercise, but putting audio tapes on, but listening to audio of his lectures all the way from Friday night talks to Sunday sermons to teaching sessions so that even though I never met him, his impact on my life and my thinking and what the Christian life was all about and what the gospel was all about and the need to stand in the moment for the present culture was indelibly imprinted on my life. And I couldn't think of even my ministry and teaching now without the influence of Francis Schaefer. Praise the Lord. It's funny that you
1: mentioned that your mom and your family and your church passed on Francis Schaefer to you. I think I recall seeing a Christian manifesto on the bookshelf at my house, and it was probably there for years without really paying attention to that. My grandmother, who was actually born in the same year as Schaefer, passed on that book to my mom when she was going through a number of things probably 20-some years ago, and I actually pulled that off the shelf recently to read through that as we're going through this project. And his ministry just continues to have lasting impact as one generation passes it on to the next. And I'm thankful that that was passed on to you, brother, and the impact that that has had on you. In your piece, you mentioned the fact that in 2019, you went to Labrie, which is the shelter where Francis Schaeffer did so much work in ministry, Edith with him. Him as well, tell us a little bit about that, and maybe what was surprising about when you showed up there at Le Brie in Switzerland.
0: Yeah, that was a great opportunity. So I had been doing some ministry in Ireland for a number of years, and then I used to try to, after I finished that, to to take a quick trip over to Europe. Right, you're there, so you think it doesn't cost a whole lot. Let's just go over and see some places. And the and the first place I really <laughs> wanted to see was, can I get to Switzerland? And uh, ever see what Labrie looked like and where I've heard Schaefer, I've read Schaefer, but I've never, ever been to Labrie and you hear so much about it. So we had the opportunity to go and it wasn't very far. We went to Geneva and rented a car and, and then drove. And I'd already had some instructions on how to get there. It was off a beaten path. And I knew that. But what struck me when I drove to Labrie, and even on the instructions, it says, you'll drive past it, you probably won't see it, you'll come to a cemetery, you turn around, and then you'll come back and you'll find the driveway. And uh, that was how you found it. So what struck me was how small a place it was, how little in terms of its size, its buildings. It was built off of a couple of chalets on the north end of the road and then other ones on the south end of the road. But it really was quite a small piece of property. And I walked around it, went to Farrell House where all of his teaching took place and Sunday services took place. And I walked in and I thought, this is smaller than my house. This is a place where they met for church and had lectures. It would be smaller than a classroom that I teach at Southern. Going downstairs and looking at the library, it was just a small little library compared to the huge libraries that we have in our seminaries and places of institutions. And it just hit me that this man who was far removed from much of the center of evangelicalism and so on, that had a small little place, seemingly insignificant, impacted uh, Christian people and Christian leaders all around the world in this small little place. And it reminded me of that famous sermon of his, no little people, no little places. I can see why he focused on that, Because God sent him to this place, he and his wife. He served here faithfully and literally he changed the evangelical world. And it reminded me of, you know, living in America, we think it has to be big. We have to go grand. We have to spend all this money and have the best of buildings and the best of resources. And no, that's fine. But the truth of the matter is God can use a small individual, seemingly insignificant, and he would say, if what is consecrated to the Lord, it's the Lord who uses us and used him to impact a whole generation. And that impact is still going on today. That was what struck me, was we don't need the huge apparatus, the huge establishment, the huge this. We need to be faithful, to be given to the Lord, and the Lord can use even insignificant people that we all are for his glory and do great things. And that's what really I left with thinking that lesson has to come back with me as I come back to the United States. And it's not just administration, organization, just do it right, the pragmatics of our culture and so on. It's faithfulness to the Lord and letting the Lord use. Us.
1: Yeah. that's a good good word. And you kind of anticipated my next question about the size of Labrie and the size of his ministry. And I think about Hebrews 13 that tells us that we are to remember those who taught us the word of God and to imitate their faith. And so, Steve, I'm just curious, what are ways in which the size of Labrie and certainly the way it rebukes and reframes the way that we think about the largeness of America, the churches and the big ministries and all the rest, how can we imitate what we see in the faithfulness of Francis Schaeffer with respect to size.
0: Yeah, I think what's crucial, right, and this I think was true of Schaeffer's life, when he went over to Switzerland after the World War, World War II generation, and Europe was in devastation, and he went over there as a missionary actually to children, which was interesting. He started a children's ministry and then eventually got to the place where Le Brie is located. Labrie would never have started without his crisis of religious experience that he recounts in his book, True Spirituality. And he recounts the fact that he had been a Christian and pastor for a number of years. He had come to saving faith through being an agnostic and reading the Bible, and the Lord converted him, and he married Edith, who grew up in the mission field in China and so on. But what really impressed him as he wrestled with going back to basic bedrock and the truthfulness of the gospel, and did he believe it and so on, was that he really had to act in faith, And in confidence, and he had to depend upon the Spirit of God. That's why his book was True Spirituality. So he says, I needed to emphasize truth. I need to emphasize the finality of Christ's work and the work of the Spirit. Dependence upon God. And that's where Labrie was really founded. I mean, if you read Eda Schaefer's book just called Labrie, and then eventually her other book that's a more detailed history called The Tapestry, that ministry was birthed in prayer. It was birthed in dependence upon God. And that's what I think makes the difference of a small place. The reliance is on the Lord, the Lord who is able to do great things, the creator and Lord, the redeemer. He is able to do exceedingly above what we can ask or think. And that's what made Schaefer great because he had a great God. And he then trusted the Lord. He acted in faith. He stood for what was right and good. He gave of his life in ministry. And it was the Lord who worked through him, taking someone that no one would expect to do mighty things, but it was the Lord who deserved all the praise and the glory. And that's the crucial lesson that we have. We have to depend upon the Lord. We cannot just go about going through the motions and thinking that our own wisdom and strength and intelligence will carry us through, whether it's pastoral ministry or teaching ministry and so on, it's dependence upon God. And that's what he emphasized from beginning to end.
1: That's really helpful. One of the words that marks out his ministry would be the word humility. Maybe this is an urban legend, but I think this is probably true to his ministry that when he showed up at a conference in America, it may have been, you know, of universities' conferences there in Champaign or Banff, that there was, he came late or something to that effect. And they were, the students were just in different places and that he actually, you know, found himself on the floor having to rest the night. And it was remarkable to some who are there that he didn't make much about himself and his needs to have a certain limo ride to where he was going or anything, but just humbly served in that way. And that's certainly a character that we should be looking for as well. Trent, thinking about the guys that you're investing in and some of the interns that you have had at your church, and as you think about influencing men for ministry, how are you helping them to have that kind of perspective on ministry, not seeking the large pulpit or large ministry, but allowing someone like Schaefer to be a good model for what ministry looks like, especially in the aspect of humility? How are you cultivating that
2: in others? Oh, well, it obviously has to start personally and with the pulpit. This Sunday, I'm preaching from Hebrews 2. It quotes Psalm 8 What is man that you're mindful of him? So the world may ask, What is man? But we have, as Christian ministers, always to be asking, What is man that you are mindful of him? So we're at the same time profoundly humbled people, first, because he is God and we are just men, but second, because he is God and he is mindful of us, mere men. And so the pastor and elder in Christian ministry is operating all the time from this understanding both of himself and of his people and of the people together that we're all trying to reach with the gospel. So it's this view of humanity and proper perspective that seasons and shapes all of our interactions. I could only pray it comes out in my own leadership presence at my church I genuinely mean to pray that way and for others to pray for me that way. So I mean, there are, getting down practically. There are always occasions in your mind when you're considering whether to say this in an interaction or this in a pulpit or this in a meeting and measuring it against your own mode and what's needed. I was thinking of a quote, Francis Schaeffer, even in No Little People, where he writes, Jesus commands Christians to seek consciously the lowest room. So that's not going to happen passively. That's a conscious seeking of the lowest room. All of us, he says, pastors, teachers professional religious workers, and non-professional included, are tempted to say, I'll take the larger place because it will give me more influence for Christ. Both individual Christians and Christian organizations fall prey to the temptation of rationalizing this way as we build bigger and better empires. But according to the scriptures, this is backwards, we should consciously take the lower place. Instead, unless the Lord himself Uh, extrudes us into a greater one. So obviously, as a preacher and a pastor among others here, there's a tone that's set, there's an ethos that's set, it's how we talk, how we pray, what we praise, what we're excited about. And there is a way that a glory seeking empire building posture will come out in a 1000 implied impressions. Yeah, so we have to pray for help to actually live as those who are astounded that we are alive as those created by God at all, but then as those who, of whom God is mindful, and to ever ask, as it will this Sunday, who is man that you, what is man that you are mindful of him, and then to act and live and minister like him.
1: That's good. Yeah, that word extrude. Such a good picture there, right? That how many in ministry, myself included, are tempted to try to jump to that next level right? If there's a larger platform to look for an opportunity to go to that. But really, the picture of extruding is being really pulled out and not seeking quickly to take that next level, but almost being forced by the Lord to push us and to constrain us into something that would be larger. Certainly, we will give an account for everything that he has given to us. And so, how quickly we can want something larger, but only if the Lord is in that, only if the Lord is leading that, and we must be depending upon him in that. And perhaps that gives us some understanding of how he was used in such great ways And certainly I was aware of that before reading your piece, Steve, but you make a point in here that I thought bears a little bit of definition or explanation, thinking about that it is not an overstatement you write to say that there is no single person in the latter half of the 20th century that impacted evangelicalism more than him. And I thought when I first was like, that seems like it could be an overstatement, but Give some reason why that really isn't an overstatement.
0: I don't think it's an overstatement. Obviously, there's been many key individuals in the 20th century that impacted evangelicalism. I mean, people think of Billy Graham and his crusades, and you think of Carl Henry, and you think of the foundation of various uh, seminaries and and so on. But uh, Schaeffer really raised up many, many, many Christian leaders that came out of Labrie, were impacted by him. David Wells was impacted by Francis Schaeffer. You think of William Edgar at Westminster. You think of so many that he ministered to and even his own family members and son-in-laws that went on to do Christian ministry. Os Guinness, major, major Christian leader and thinker. He raised up a lot of leaders that then took key spots in evangelical circles. He was crucial in the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, for standing Scripture, and he was crucial even with the Lausanne Conference. He was very concerned that evangelicals were making too much of common cause with too many people that didn't have the same theological convictions, and I think he held people's feet to the fire. I think there was some conversations with John Stott that emboldened him to stand in the Anglican context for Scripture. And then I think you have the impact on common people that came, the amount of Conv- people that were converted at Lebrie, the writings as he later in life for many years he was, you know, 1955 is when Lebrie started but he really didn't come on the evangelical scene till the late 60s or so when he started doing lectures over at Wheaton College that became Escape from Reason and then eventually The God Who Is There and then eventually in the 70s with his impact on his video series and his Stand for Life in all those areas. But he galvanized Christians to enter into the public sphere. He galvanized he in the evangelical world almost single-handedly with uh, Everett Koop, the former Surgeon General of the US woke evangelicals up out of their slumber and fought for life. Yeah, you know, the post-Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 was primarily a Roman Catholic issue. Evangelicals were asleep. I mean, in fact, I don't even want to name some of the evangelicals who were ast- agreed with the Roe v. Wade decision. It's just uh, absolutely shocking. And he said, no, we have to stand for life. And so he saw that as part of larger trends and so on, but he galvanized a whole bunch of people to, to vote, to get active, to stop just letting the culture go by. So you've got Christian leaders, you've got impact on Christian organizations, you have impact on lives that he touched with personal ministry, his books, and raised up a whole generation of evangelicals to really stand for truth. And so, I mean, his impact is huge. And again, there's others that have that impact, but I do think you can make a case that he is one of the most influential leaders in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, you make that case in the article. I think what you just said are certainly reasons for that. You think about the number of different men and women. I think about Nancy who would be another yeah. one who has been deeply impacted by the work of Schaefer. So I'm curious, as a professor at seminary, do students coming to seminary there,
0: do they know Schaefer? Is Schaefer someone who is known for men and women who are of a younger generation. Yeah, when I find him mean, that's a great question because I'm always saying, look, this is what Francis Schaeffer said. Do you know Francis Schaeffer because you can't take anything the older you get the and the further removed we are from his death in 1984, you can't take for granted that people are reading him. I find that students have a vague recollection of him. They've heard of the name, but they haven't really delved into a lot of his works. So you have exceptions. I think the video series How Should We Then Live and Whatever Happened to the Human Race still resonates with a few, but it's becoming less and less and less. We have a whole generation, probably a couple of generations, that really aren't that familiar with him. And this is why we want to introduce people to him, right? Key people in the history of the church. He's most recent as Trent began. You know, he's not like living in the Reformation era, but he helps us in our time because what he was addressing in his day is certainly the same kind of situation we face today. And probably we've are in a kind of worse situation, or we've even gone further than he was and and he spoke about or lived. He anticipated it. But uh, I find that we do have to introduce people to him more and more and more because the longer we get removed from his death, the less people know about him.
1: Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And he really was prophetic. He really was able to see where culture was coming from and where it was going. He looks back at the very beginning of a Christian manifesto to the fact that people for the last 80 years, he says, have been looking at bits and pieces, various problems that are in our culture, but not looking at the the total, looking at the whole worldview. And so he saw that and he was able to anticipate some of the things that we're experiencing today. In your article, you bring up some of those things and really want to kind of press into some of the details and some of the things that are helpful from Schaefer. And you list four different things, Steve. And one of them is that the truth of the gospel must be central to our lives. And again, it's probably always wise to not assume that people have a right understanding of the gospel. So, a two-part question for you, what is the gospel, and why does truth have to be something that we
0: maintain or affirm as we're explaining the gospel? Right. Yeah, very important. I mean, and Schaefer would clearly communicate the gospel. And of course, the gospel, properly, I think, communicated, starts with the God who is there, right, to take one of the titles of of his books, right? To the gospel centers in the triune God who is there from eternity, who has planned all things, who is then created and works out his will and glory in this world, and then about us as human beings that he's made in his image to know him, to adore him, to worship him and glorify him, but us in our sin. We have rebelled against God. We stand under God's judgment. There is no hope for us. And of course, Schaefer as well as scripture, has a very desperate situation that humans are in. Creatures who have value and dignity yet are fallen and depraved. That require God to save. And of course, the gospel is accented on God's initiative from eternity to plan and to execute that plan in the sending of His Son who alone can redeem us so that it's only by Christ alone and His life, death, resurrection, ascension, all that He has done for us and pouring out the Spirit and that we receive that with the empty hands of faith. We do not contribute anything to our salvation. Christ has done it alone and we receive Him by faith. Schaefer would often say the open hands, the empty hands of faith, so that in Christ we are justified, we are declared righteous because of what he has done, our sins are forgiven, we are transformed by the Spirit, made alive and transformed. That is at the heart of the gospel, right? By grace, through faith in Christ alone. And this is what Schaefer emphasized, and this is what the Bible emphasizes, and he emphasized so strongly that this gospel message isn't just a nice story. It's not just uh, something that will change your thinking of yourself or you know allows you to have some kind of spirituality or religious experience but that it's truth and he would always emphasize true truth or capital truth truth. And what he is emphasizing here is the Bible actually is the God of Scripture and his word are true, right? It's true to reality. This God really is there. It's not just our construction of him. And he emphasized this so strongly because he realized of the time we live in, He realized that as we look at Western thought and Western history, step by step, there has been a de-emphasis on the grounds for what we call objective truth— primary reason for that is the loss of the Christian worldview. And so he says that we have to emphasize because we live in a relative situation, we live in a pluralistic situation. He already anticipated a postmodern, even though he never used that term. He called it modern, modern, right? That was his way of describing postmodern. He realized that at the heart of our time that we live in is a loss of objective truth. So we have to emphasize to people when we preach the gospel to them, we're not just changing their psychology. We're not just making their life better and giving them a better marriage. We're proclaiming the God of truth. We're proclaiming the reality of human sin and our need for a redeemer, the Christ who alone is Lord and savior and fully God, fully human who alone can save. So that's what he emphasizes. And that has not changed, right? We, in some sense, live in a situation today that has even taken what we call the modern world and made it worse, right? So that we now live in a postmodern relative situation, a constructivist view, a subjective view. We see that all around us. And Schaefer was warning us to say when we preach the gospel, we preach the gospel in terms of its f- full teaching and full exposition and full authority, but we must convince and teach people that this is truth. And you believe it because it's true. You don't believe it just because it is going to give you a better life. And that is a message that is true to the Bible, but it mm-hmm. is crucial to emphasize in the day and wage we live in.
1: Yeah, I think that's really helpful because certainly Schaefer talks a great deal about reality. And I think even his spiritual crisis led into what is really real. And so he's certainly grappling with that and those in the 1960s who are questioning the realities around them and moving towards the drug culture and nihilism and everything else like that. And it's interesting to set someone like Schaefer over against someone like Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, who came about the same time. And he also is wanting to preach the gospel. But the way that he brought that about was to boil the gospel down to the four spiritual laws and using, and you can make this point, maybe a real modernist approach to getting that across. But in that, there was a great moment or a great movement for an eschatological reality. They thought that the end was coming, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, to so try to get the message out as much as possible. And there's goodness that has come from that. But really, Campus Crusade had to fill back in some of the things that Schaeffer had from the very beginning. And that was the truth that was there that pressed into all corners of the world. And certainly that was one of the things that we see with him. And see, that leads into something that you bring out in just the second point from Schaefer. and says, ideas have consequences, right? So that's the language from someone. More like a Richard Weaver who wrote about that, but certainly that's what Schaefer is doing as well. And there are two things here I want to bring out from what you say here. One, you mentioned that sometimes scholars quibble over some of Schaefer's analysis of intellectual history, but he was right with regards to Western society and this witness of, of a line of despair. So what is it that scholars have quibbled about with Schaefer? And then what is this enduring reality of what Schaefer did get right to be able to show this line of despair?
0: Yeah, I mean, the quibbling, I mean, there's a number of quibbles, but if we would take his sort of schematization of from Greeks to our contemporary day, he often presented the Greek philosophers as believing in truth, right? They believed in what he called the antithesis, right? So something can be right from wrong, true from false. And so he often presented the Greeks in that fashion, and that then Christianity in its teaching of truth carried that through. And then there was a loss of truth, the loss of the antithesis. And he would see certain crucial people leading to this loss. Uh, He mentioned Aquinas as opening the door. He mentioned uh, particularly Hegel uh, functioned quite strongly for him in that Hegel and he interpreted Hegel as pretty much a relativist. So he opened the door to relativity, and then he mentioned then the line of despair sort of followed from there. Some of the quibble here is Greek thought is obviously much more complicated, right? So you have the great traditions of Plato and Aristotle that are pursuing notions of objective truth, grand view of metaphysics theories of knowledge, epistemology, and ethics. But you also have naturalists, you have Epicureans, you have relativists, you have all kinds of things. So the description of Greek society isn't quite right. And then when you look at Hegel... Hegel isn't really a relativist. He's bringing history and God together, which is going to lead to relativity. But in the end, he's pursuing the grand idea of having some absolute truth, right? And he didn't emphasize as much Emmanuel and so on. But he did emphasize, uh, interestingly enough, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which has uh, Carl Truman in his recent book on the rise of the modern self has strongly emphasized. So there's some quibbles, but overall, he's right in that when you look at intellectual history of the West, and then you could apply this to the non-Western societies, but particularly with the rise of the gospel and of Christianity that impacted the West. So you think of Constantine, Theodosius, the Eastern portion of the Roman Empire, and then the Western portion that then eventually was evangelized by Christianity and became what we know as Europe and Christendom and this type of thing, is that there was a change in the Enlightenment leading to what we call the modern world that led to a denial of objective truth. Step by step by step, and this is what he calls the line of despair, there is a denial of objective truth and that all the disciplines, it starts with philosophy and then it filters down into every aspect of society so that people act eventually on what they believe. And that's the idea of ideas have consequences. So what we see around us is from a long history, right? So he begins, how should we then live by saying there's a flow to history and you have to understand how ideas have worked themselves out in history. This is his main contribution with this idea that people will act on what they believe. And unfortunately, they do act on what they believe. And if they have false ideas about God and about humans and about sin and about reality, eventually, this is what we'll see worked out. So if you believe, and he was very concerned with Darwin and so on, that if you have Darwin and an evolutionary view of humans, it's no wonder that abortion arises. It's no wonder that infanticide will take place. It's no wonder that euthanasia, you'll treat elderly as insignificant. So all of his thinking through of the changes of Western society, the move away from a Christian understanding to the embrace of alien worldviews, false ideas, he then said have practical implications and they they will show themselves in everyday life. And that's what he is, you know, in terms of his long lasting legacy teaches us so that we have to know our times, we have to know what's affected them in order to then respond to them appropriately. If we don't understand these ideas, then we will simply be caught up with the world. And inevitably, he was always concerned that we become syncretists. We just simply blend Christianity with whatever the culture says, and we don't see that we must stand for what is true, right, good, and beautiful. And Mm -hmm. that's what he's emphasizing.
1: Yeah, I think that's helpful. That even explains a little bit how he was able to anticipate and to see into the future, if you will, some of the things that we experience around us today. As he saw that those ideas, those thoughts do have consequences. Trent, as a pastor and as a preacher, how do you help inform your congregation? How does thinking about worldview come into play when you're preaching? How are you seeking to make disciples and to encourage people to think in these larger categories and terms?
2: Well, every text comes to us within the context of the Bible's unfolding story, which is a story of everything under the God who made everything and revealed himself to us. I'm remembering why I came into Francis Schaefer was college a kind of an epistemological crisis. I remember thinking I would construct this big argument that would lead to the conclusion that Christianity was, true and I was compiling more and more facts and data and eventually I was losing confidence both in the gospel and in my ability to preach it because I would need all the answers for everyone at all the time. And it was in that context that a professor and some friends put Francis Shaver and others in front of me and it was Francis Schaeffer's, you know, the idea of presuppositions and thinking below the surface of things that helped me grow in confidence. I had presuppositions, as did everybody else, and I would have to accept by faith there is a God and he has spoken and this is his word. So in leading and preaching and teaching and pastoring, I am at all times leading from basic presuppositions that are revealed in Scripture but are true to the way the world is. And in speaking that way and leading that way and rejoicing in those things confidently and helping my people grow in confidence, not only that the gospel is really true, but that they can really preach it and that God can really save. So that'd be how I'd answer that.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. And, you know, this antithesis, Steve, that you bring out, that Francis Schaefer brings out, I think is a helpful thing to come back to the gospel as well, that I think so often the message of salvation has been boiled down to, Christ saves, and that's gloriously true, but he saves us from judgment, and that the message of the gospel is one of salvation and judgment, and that there's a sense in which Christ said that he did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword, and he's bringing a division into the world, and that division stands at the throne of God, that there will be those on his right who have repented and believed and trusted in Christ. We know that they are those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, but then there are those who have rejected Christ, who have ignored Christ, who stand under the judgment of God and maintain. Obtaining that antithesis matters so much for the sake of right and wrong, of good and evil, of salvation and judgment. And that just seems to be an important part of any worldview that we would have. And also just thinking about what you bring out with regards to systems of thought. One of the things that you get into in this third section with regards to the ultimate differences that worldviews will make, you bring out the fact that there are different systems of thought. And this is one of the things that I know that you've done a great deal to teach in your classrooms. Trent and I have both been your students in years past, have benefited from this. So, let me ask this question. And you get into some of the issues of critical theory and all the rest. What's the problem of accepting or applying different tenets of CRT or critical theory or different views today that people say, well, that's just generally accepted, that's true. But when it's coming from a certain system, what's the problem of
0: applying or accepting some of those tenets? Yeah, that's a crucial issue. And of course, of application, right? So, The crucial matter is that we do think worldviews come in packages, and they are all of the belief systems hang together so that if you start taking certain beliefs from one worldview and trying to blend them, which is a form of syncretism, with an alien with a a totally opposite worldview, eventually you cause the, particularly when you think of the Christian view, it begins to self-destruct. It begins to not hold together. And Schaefer was very, very crucial. We have to think in terms of big pictures. we have to think in terms of the Christian view as a whole, and it itself must then be set over against these other views that have other views of reality, other views of knowledge, other views of ethics. Now, he would also acknowledge that, you know, given the fact that the Christian view is true, that all human beings are image bearers, that there is not only common grace, but there are common ground and truths that we can hold to, but the non-Christian holds to those true in despite themselves, right? I mean, they hold to their view and they're inconsistent. So this is where he's very, very helpful, and especially with a CRT, is that CRT comes already as an entire worldview. It has a certain view of God. It has a certain view of humans. It has a certain view of what the problem is in terms of what we would call sin, but there it's described in terms of generally speaking, more Marxist categories, oppressed, oppressor, identity issues. Well, already all of that teaching that comes out of, say, a CRT worldview is already in opposition to the Christian view. So we can see what the problem is, but it's not going to be the problem of how critical race theory describes the problem. If you try to blend them together, you're ultimately bringing two systems together that are at uh, antithetical odds with one another, and inevitably, you will not have the power and the truth of the gospel. So, that's where, thinking of worldviews, you've got to think, first of all, what's the Christian worldview? Well, you have to have a proper view of God, right? He came to faith, interestingly enough, by reading the Bible, right? He came out of an agnostic background, and he said that uh, getting through the early chapters of Genesis is when he uh, gave his life to Christ, because he said all the answers that uh, people are looking for are in the early chapters of Genesis. The God who is there before the beginning, the God who creates, the God who makes humans in a certain way as image bearers, male and female, the issues of a historic Adam, historic fall, the need for a redeemer. Well, all of those pieces that give us the Christian worldview are the opposite of what, say, other worldviews teach and particularly, say, a CRT. So we have to stand on the Christian view and look at maybe the analysis of problems that worldviews will give us or say CRT will say, well, here's the human problem. But we have to analyze the problem from Christian lens, Christian eyes, and then critique their view instead of adopt their view because in the end, their view will not lead to the gospel and will not lead to Christian truth. And it's not grounded in a Christian view of the world, which alone is true. So these are some of the problems. And this is where the challenges we're facing today. He made it very clear that we think too much in pieces, not the whole, all. We have to think in terms of entire Christian theology, entire Christian worldview, and that's what we need to be able to bring to bear in evaluating, analyzing, and critiquing the culture around us. And if we don't do that, inevitably, we adopt the views of the culture, and that was what he says you must not do. And of course, he's getting that from Scripture. We must set Christ as Lord, and we must then set a biblical view of thinking over against the world's view. And if we accept accept anything from the view of the world, it's only because it's gone through the lens of Scripture. It's only because there's the standard of Scripture that says, yes, this is true versus false, but here's the whole picture, and this is what alone will bring life and goodness because it's grounded in the truth of God's Word. Yeah.
1: And I think the thing that's so Probably lasting for someone like Schaefer is that he was able to make this point to preach the gospel clearly, to look at the totality of scripture, the totality of the world that God has made, the God who is there, the God who's before creation, and to do so with compassion and love. So, the last point that you make in your article, Steve, is the importance of a godly life for Christian leadership. And really, one of the things that was just so great about Francis Schaefer was Francis Schaefer, right? That when he was sharing the gospel with others, there was an incredible burden and compassion that he had for others. I think he was incredibly not empathetic, but sympathetic towards those who are suffering in these ways and wanted to see the truth really set people free from what they were facing in the world around them. And that's probably one of the reasons why Schaefer's enduring legacy continues and why those people who were closest to him did not turn away from him, but rather continued to recognize the genuineness and the sincerity and the truthfulness of this man who is certainly changed by God and was used by God to change so many. Trent or Steve, just as we kind of wrap up here, anything else that you'd want to add or anything else just to encourage people to consider Francis Schaeffer in the days to come?
0: Well, just that last point that you emphasized in my listening, of course, I never met him personally, but in listening to all of his messages and so on, you get this sense that And he would say, what's our greatest need is to love God and love our neighbor, to stand for what is the holiness of God and the love of God as it's worked out in terms of our relationships. And you got that sense that this man actually believed what he said and lived it out. And of course, that's the testimony of all those around him. He had spiritual authenticity. He wasn't a perfect man. Some say he maybe would you know have anger and could easily get upset with things and, and so on. But he was a man who loved the Lord and loved people. and he knew who people were and he would reach out to them and live out the truth of the gospel. And of course, that was true of his wife as well. You wouldn't have been anything without Edith Schaefer, and opening up their home. This is such an important lesson for us. We sit in our ivory towers. We talk the gospel. We can preach and teach. We think we can be on speaking tours and circuits. We have the evangelical elite, you know, standing up. But the nitty gritty of life, right, is do we actually live and put into practice? what we say? Do we open our homes? Are we authentic? Do we actually believe what we say or are we just going through the motions? And that really is a challenge that Schaefer has brought to my life is this wedding of a passionate commitment to truth and the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word and a really a godly life that seeks to then live out the truth in a way that's consistent with the gospel. Yeah, it's a good word. Trent,
2: final words for you, brother? Yeah, I mean... Message from Francis Schaefer is, you are not alone. There is a God and he's spoken, but also, secondarily, he is a friend from the past. And so we are not alone up against our challenges. We have a friend in one another in this podcast and fellowship, but also in men like Francis Schaefer who are with us in the work.
1: Amen. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to devote this month to thinking about his life and his legacy, his thought, certainly the book that he wrote, A Christian Manifesto. You can go and read articles about every chapter about that on our website. Brad Green's article addresses that even more. And our good friends at Crossway have even provided a free PDF to be able to download and to read if you don't have a copy of that book, and certainly you can read his trilogy, you can read the five volumes that he has written on these things. He's a great resource for us. Well, brothers, thank you for your time today and sharing your insights, and we'll look forward to having you guys again talking about these things in the months ahead. Thanks for listening to the Christ Overall Podcast. If this discussion makes you want to think more about Francis Schaefer, his life, and his thought, we'd encourage you to read Steve Wellam's article about Francis Schaefer. You can also listen to him read the article on the previous podcast. You may be interested to know as well that our friends at Crossway have provided a free PDF of a Christian manifesto this month that you can download from the Christ Overall website. Again, if you want to know more about what is going on with Christ Overall, we would encourage you to sign up for our newsletter, and you can also support the work by going to the website. Until next time, remember Christ is over all, so in all things, let us exalt Christ.